flush king. Uh, what? Is that a flush? Yes. Is that is that an open plan toilet or is there a door? I've between there and... There's a door. Of course there is. But just... Do you close that door? Well, yeah. Depending on what I'm doing. Where's Where's Rory? I've changed rooms. The, 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 the great rewiring has started. Oh, right. How exciting. We're having carpeting done. You're having rewiring, are you? Oh, yeah. Well, carpeting will come in... Tw- carpeting is scheduled for 2027. <laughs> How long does rewiring take? Three, uh, three weeks. Three weeks? Yep. Just move slightly away from the, the mic for this because we're trying to regulate our, our levels. So give me a one to ten. Like one, one two. G. One, two. <laughs> Regulate by one what G, Stephen. Legendary start to the week. The uh, It's Tuesday, Chinch. The... <laughs> yes, but it was a bank holiday, so this is the start of the working week, isn't it? The, I know, it's, confu- it's totally thrown me. Does that feel yeah, like I, I think Monday? it's Monday today. It yeah. isn't. Yeah. And I felt like I had two Sundays. Which is odd, because I don't des- desperately want to have two Sundays. There's a lot of childcare on Sunday. and Morrissey was right, wasn't he? Every day is like Sunday. Well, the last two days have been like Sunday, haven't they? But it does. I woke up this morning genuinely thinking this is Monday. What is it? Woke up with a girl on Monday. Can I do Craig David's seven days instead of counting? <laughs> so we've had Warren G and Regulate. We've had Morrissey and Every Day is like Sunday. And now you're going on... Who are you going with? Craig David. Craig David. David. Uh, Chinch is already on Spotify creating a playlist. That would be an amazing playlist. Regulate's on quite a lot of my playlists, actually. This is quite a nice backdrop. It's better than my, better than my normal backdrop. I might annex Kate's office. Why does Kate have a chandelier in her office and you, frankly, have just a load of dishevelled New York Times front pages? Because she's very fancy. <laughs> is that a chandelier? No. Let's still be there after Rodney and Delboy have finished doing a wiring. <laughs> the, uh, that, that, they are not. I would, I, would, I would object to that on their behalf. Oh, They've really? been okay. incredibly professional. And How many cool. guys does it take to rewire a house? <laughs> Two and a spaniel. Two. And a spaniel. They brought a spaniel. How did it pass the? How did it pass the tests? Well, I mean, it's just clearly a very gifted spaniel. But Hector, wow. Hector, Hector's been quite rude to it, to be honest. How does it? How does it handle the electrical screwdrivers? It's uh, very think, tricky for a dog. I don't think it's fully. I don't think it's fully qualified. I think it mainly passes the the, the guy's equipment. Oh, it's on an apprenticeship. Yeah, it's an apprentice. It's an apprentice spaniel. Mm. No, it's a it's a fully qualified spaniel. Oh. It knows how to be a spaniel. It's just an apprentice yeah. electrician. I see, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah. it a fully vaccinated spaniel? I would hope so. I'm not entirely sure the spaniel's in your bubble, so therefore needs to be masked at the very least when it's inside your house. Uh, this, well, no, it doesn't apply to dogs. They are not a vector of disease. Not that disease. They're a vector of lots of other diseases, but they're not a vector of that disease. They, do not, they are not susceptible to the coronavirus. My cat sneezed in my uh, face yesterday, and I was slightly concerned that that might have been a, a direct transference of something. My son spat at me, and I. <laughs> God, and I, I didn't really know how to deal with it. Intentionally, the first time maybe not. I think he was he was like blowing the a raspberry. Well, no, the so first time. The first time maybe not. He was. I think he was like blowing a raspberry, and it went a bit. It went a bit wet, and I said to him, Ed, Ed, don't spit at me. So. He immediately looked looked down, looked back up, and just jobbed at me, as if to say, oh, yeah, I can do that, can't I? It was like playing football in South America. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, William the Conqueror, Rory Smith, William the Silent, and Andy Hinchcliffe, William the Refrigerator Perry. Yes! <laughs> oh, who's yes. William, oh, who's William the Silent? 
William Simon is some sort of Dutch prince. I just needed a third and, and frankly, Google delivered. The food is, uh, Rory, you've done something um, hipsterish. Well, sort of. We, we, we've been talking about getting a pizza oven, but then we remembered we we're from Yorkshire and didn't want to spend hundreds of pounds on anything. <laughs> So we not even the wiring. No, well, no, the wire. Well, we can't spend any money on anything because of the cost of the wiring. But um, the that's what that's how much you have to pay to get a spaniel to do it. That's the problem. If you if you specifically request a dog to rewire rewire your house, then it does cost you more. Do you think it would have taken less than three weeks if you'd got some men to do it rather than a dog? Yeah, but it's just worth it to have another dog around, isn't it? That's what that's the thing. I mean, humans obviously do it a lot quicker, but I wanted a spaniel to do it. Um, so we bought a pizza stone. For a, so we got a chimenea that my parents weren't using anymore. We got that for free, zero pounds, the, the Yorkshire price. Then we bought a pizza <laughs> stone for 24 quid, which is acceptable. That's an acceptable amount of money. I've, you know, I've got... I have no idea what the going rate for pizza stones are. Have you been well, ripped you, off there? or you, you can pay anything. The 20s, 20s is your cheapest. And as you know, my, my approach <laughs> to everything... You've done some research on this. A lot of research. My approach to everything is you buy the second cheapest version. You don't buy the cheapest version. It's like with wine on a date. You buy yeah, the but have second... you heard about, heard about this now? What restaurants are doing is pumping up the price of the, the second highest priced wine because they know that's what everyone's going to do now. Yeah. So actually... You're paying far too much, even though you think you're actually saving money. You're not, because the restaurants are pumping the price up. That, that's so you rest- fool, you went for the second highest price pizza no, no, no. stone. You fell for it, you clown. No, 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 I did the Yorkshire thing. I went for the second cheapest. Oh. So you don't buy the cheap one, because that, that will be poor quality. You buy the second cheapest. Um, but then we discovered that it's been a real Farago. So we discovered that the first one I bought didn't fit in the, in the aperture of the chimenea. So I measured the aperture of the chimney, which admittedly I should have done first, uh, and then bought another one, which is smaller. But then we discovered that we didn't have a griddle for it, like a grill for it to sit on. So I had to go and buy one of those. But then the first one I bought didn't fit, and the second one did. And then I bought a pizza peel, which is what you lift pizzas up with. Um, and we discovered that that doesn't fit in the aperture either. So we, we had to kind of get them out with by, by hand. So my overall review of pizza stones is put them in the oven. <laughs> I think the overall review of Rory's purchasing technique is to maybe measure the damn thing first and then That's apply it to true, each yeah. purchase thereafter each, each rather item. than just the first one. Next, next time we, sound, next you sound time. eerily like Kate. <laughs> next time we see Rory in person, it's just going to be the guy from the Plusnet advert turns up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the football is chinched. Do you know what we're talking about today? Is it the uh, gardening footballing crossover? Are we talking about gravel block paving pathways? That's what that's what I, that's what I read from the uh, the correspondence I had. Yes, he, he paid enough attention to be able to come up with a very long road gag. Uh, we're talking about player pathways. It sounds like oh, player pathways. <laughs> yes, it does. It doesn't sound like gardening. It sounds a little like management <sighs> consultant mumbo jumbo. But it is very much part of how a modern elite player and their agent fashion a long term future. When we talked about uh, agents a few weeks ago, we mentioned what happened uh, when it was a slightly scattergun Mino Raiola fundraising tour. It seemed to be on behalf of Erling Haaland. But is that the more public side of what goes on behind the scenes for those who have the luxury of choosing where they play their football now and next? So that is to come on the podcast. Get in touch with uh, us here at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. Now, we're not doing an actual pod on the ESL today, but you might not be surprised to hear there's been a lot of correspondence on that subject. So we'll extend this section a little intentionally this time rather than just being because uh, I have incredibly poor time management skills. Uh, So we start with Jack Gunther. Dear Hugh, Rory, Steve and Andy, it seems set-piece menu's typically astute analysis has become so good 
It can predict the future. And I don't say that simply to guarantee that my email be read out. Surely the scenes at Old Trafford on Sunday are evidence of the tribalism discussed on last week's podcast. While in principle I agree with the sentiment that the game belongs to the fans, not the owners, I I worry that once you start drawing lines around who the game belongs to, it becomes difficult to stop. Does the game belong to all fans equally? Women, kids, foreign fans? Is what we saw at Old Trafford on Sunday a new kind of tribalism? Or is it the same old tribalism redirected. That's sincerely from Jack Gunther in Princeton, New Jersey. I'll get your thoughts on that after we have heard from Shane Thomas on a similar theme. Greetings Sky Sports, BT Sport, BBC Sport and ITV Digital. Uh, During your pod about the fan backlash to the Super League, Rory, I think it was Rory, made a point that fans from those six clubs might like the idea of fan-led football in theory, but less so in practice, as it would mean their teams wouldn't dominate English football the way that they have been. I think the fundamental issue that Rory, again, I think it was Rory, diagnosed is that despite football being our national sport, I don't think it's a nation that has a lot of football fans. We have plenty of Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool fans, etc. But fans of football, people who are really interested in the minutiae of the game, who want to see the game thrive rather than just their team thrive. I wonder if that's a relatively low number compared to those who actually watch the sport. Obviously, there are some, e.g. those who work on and listen to this podcast. But as anyone who spends enough time on football Twitter will know, there's such a narrow one dimensional perspective in the views expressed. One wonders, do you even like football or do you only like football when your team wins? I'm currently penning this during the Old Trafford protests and when we see banners as saying football belongs to the fans I wonder what they mean by football and whose fans are they talking about many thanks for the continued content Shane Thomas your thoughts gentlemen just can I just ask is that banning from my house no no it's my my carpet fitter Nathaniel ah. he's uh, he's quite heavy handed with his hammer but he's doing a it sounds like he's doing a cracking job. I think he's laying carpets or he's taking a wall down. I'm not sure. I did ask him to lay carpets. Do not knock out that internal wall. But I'll see. In about an hour, I'll see what, what's left of my home. Nikki's home, really, that I live in. Good. That's a relief. I did the radio the, the other day and we, we had a fan on who'd been at the Old Trafford protest who was really, really interesting and really, really good. Um, and we were, talking, we were talking about kind of, you know, the, the aims from here, like where does it go? What potential change to this moment that we're in? This groundswell of, of rejection of, of kind of foot, a lot of modern football's values. Where does it go? And to me, what's interesting is that obviously people people cite Germany as kind of this is you know if you look at the, the German fan culture, it's much more activist, much more able to kind of push for for genuine change across the board. And I, I was trying to work out why that doesn't exist here, and I think Shane might have put his finger on it that that we we have a lot of fans of individual clubs whether we have that many people, whether we have a tradition of people who genuinely can separate the interest of their club from the interest of the game as a whole, I don't know. And that, that I think, is one of the the big tests for, for, for for this movement, in inverted commas, and where it goes from here, is whether you can, you can get enough people on board who can say, we are prepared to do things that are in the interest of the game, even if they are not necessarily, or even at all, in the interest of our club. I also did the radio uh, the other day, indeed on the same day, different day part, probably fewer people listening. But they, um, I, I put that point to a caller to the phone-in um, who disputed it, said that, no, there, there, are, there are fans of football. It was interesting, he was a slightly older gentleman and he was a fan of Leicester, so I was wondering if it was actually your father, Rory. My, my father would not be calling a phone-in, <laughs> Hugh. Um, that sounds very grand. He, he just doesn't know how to work the phone. Um, the, the no, it wasn't. It, that wouldn't have been Rod. Uh, it was. It was. It was a view expressed, um, which was contrary to the one that I was saying might be um, prevalent in football. But I do still believe that it, it is a minority view, given it's, those those parameters that we mentioned. 
it's impossible to say really to be honest like i'm sure that everybody has some level of affection towards the game some sort of lingering romantic attachment to the game as a whole and some sense of this is in the game's interest but i think it depends on what your there's a problem within the process as a whole because you know i, I think we covered this last week like are the arsenal fans who demonstrated outside the emirates a couple of weeks ago do they want 50 plus one or do they want daniel Eck? do they want a nice billionaire as opposed to a bad billionaire and there there will be a, a split in in united fans in arsenal fans and liverpool fans in in tottenham fans about where they the model that they want their club to follow but you're not the point is you're not going to get real change not going to get sub- substantive change if you swap out one set of billionaires for another that's not going to happen and it's not yeah. you're not going to get substantive substantive change either if you swap out the current bid six for a bid six comprised of six six other clubs backed by billionaires they they are still all billionaires there is still this issue that football is is in the hands of the billionaire class and if the fans want real change they have to they they have to understand what their what their aims are and what the consequences of that change change it um and i think that that's something that is really hard to say whether you're, you're a fan of one club or a fan of football in general or whether you're a fan of a club but you are mainly concerned by the fate of the game as a whole it's really difficult to say what what does that change look like because it might look really boring it might be an independent regulator like Darry neville keeps, you know, Darry neville does these big rants on sky and he sounds like a cross between che Guevara and citizen smith and tony wilson and then he ends up saying, you know, it's all this tub-thumping stuff, and then it's, we need an independent regulator. And he thinks, you know what, if if Che and Fidel had landed on Cuba demanding the independent regulation of the Batista regime, then then that probably wouldn't have worked out quite so dramatically. Do you know what I mean? It may well like be that our... Python sketch. It does. It may well be that our American <laughs> listeners need to Google both Citizen Smith and indeed Tony Wilson, but uh, <laughs> that, there will be value in doing that. Stephen? Even within our own city you can see where there would be a division. This this idea that we're all in this together, we all want what's best for football, could not be more perfectly contradicted by Manchester United and Manchester City. Because what might work for Manchester United and what those United fans protesting at the weekend feel is the way forward for their club, almost certainly wouldn't, under current circumstances, benefit Manchester City. So I don't think we're going to see the same uprising from from City supporters, because Manchester United have this huge commercial power and this this huge global relevance, which which drives drives their economy and and means that money will continue to come into the club, regardless perhaps of of whether or not they have a billionaire owner. Whereas the same cannot be said currently for Manchester City for whom the model of having a billionaire owner currently works very nicely for them. So e- even within one city where there are two clubs, you can see what will work for one won't necessarily be to the benefit of the other. Just on Jack's email, the that hadn't occurred to me. And I think my initial reaction was that that this is the sort of issue that can erase tribalism to an extent, that fans can come together and, and protest for the greater good. But he is right that there is a risk that football is so kind of inherently tribal that it's so used to, to fracturing along, along those lines that what you end up with is a is a splinter within each club as to what people want to do in the future and how they see it going, what they think it means. So there will be some at United, and that's as good, good, good an example as any, who think that the solution to this problem is Saudi Arabia buying them. And I would say that Saudi Arabia buying Manchester United is the exact opposite of the solution to this problem. And there'll be others who want a genuine, you know, a genuine kind of not even a... 
this this sort of idea that football has to be returned to the fans is nonsense because it's never belonged to the fans in any real sense. It's just that the scale of the businesses who own it now are much greater. But that 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 is a risk that if the fans don't have, if the movement doesn't have a purpose that if it doesn't have a sort of unified purpose, a sense of right, this is what we want, rather than here are lots of different groups of people who want lots of different things, then it will it will ultimately dissipate. Can I just also, because the 50 plus one model and Germany has been mentioned, can I just also jump in and point out that there has been a little bit of a misunderstanding, I think, about the system in, in the, or with the, with the big clubs in Germany in this 50 plus one thing. That relates to voting rights, not ownership. A lot of people, I think, in England, looking at our clubs, believe that that relates to fans having 50 plus one percent ownership. It, it isn't. It's 50-50 split on voting rights plus one vote. People can own shares or can own the club, can run the club. They just can't have more than a 50 minus one vote say in the decision making. That is so you, quite an important distinction. So you get this thing where, where quite a lot of clubs have that they are effectively div- the team itself is a division of a holding company yeah which is clubs have found ways around it 50 plus one isn't quite as pure as everyone thinks it is but i suppose from the, the perspective of where we are now in in england it is much better because it does at least ensure it ensures that the clubs have to have some sort of accountability to their fans so so surely what we're seeing though with the say the, the biggest protests have been at united liverpool and arsenal yeah I, i'm presuming again it, was it, it wasn't necessarily a coming together of the fans of those clubs. It was those fans protesting against the ownership of their clubs. And there seemed to be a common theme where we're all in this together. We're all unhappy with our owners. They're not doing this to say that football in general needs to change. Our club needs to change. We need our ownership to change. So that is the problem. Again, then they're, they're clearly, I've not heard them talking about the bigger picture about football in general. It seems to be very much about their clubs. You can understand that, can't you? If they've been watching their clubs for 30, 40 years, that's their first point. If they're not happy with it, they're going to protest against that, presumably. But are we hearing from these fans that actually they're thinking about Man United, they're thinking about Liverpool, they're thinking about the Premier League, they're thinking about European football. They're not, are they? They're just, they're just blinkered and thinking about their own clubs. I, think I can it... understand why they start there. I don't think it has been opened out as to talk about football in general and how we, everything needs to change across the board. It's our club needs to change, our ownership needs to change, and we'll just concentrate on that, surely. I think there's a split. I think there are... So it's interesting, first of all, that, that you, the biggest protest by far have been United and Arsenal, and that's because they, they dislike their owners the most, regardless mm-hmm. of the Super League. It, it, but that's where it has to start, with their unhappy. Well, that, that's the so, first point of call, and then it, it, it th- opens out from there, doesn't it, to football in general? I think, it, I think it's because those fans are most mobilised already. Liverpool is a bit more complicated, as I think there is some sort of basic level of... Of uh, somewhere between affection and admiration and tolerance of FSG, they they are not seen as bad owners in the same way as the Blazers and Cronky are, are bad owners. Spurs, I'm not sure what's happened at Spurs. Obviously, Chelsea, there was the there was the protest initially that got the that got the Super League cancelled, but there's been not nothing since. And City, there's there's been no protest at all, and that I think is because Chelsea and City fans basically know that they their their club's whole current identity rests mm-hmm. entirely on their owners. Spurs is a funny one. I've not seen any. There's certainly not been any massive protests at Spurs, but then I don't know whether that's just powerlessness or a sense that, that Joe Lewis, who's the ultimate owner, isn't maybe isn't loathed in the way that Cronky or the Glazers are loathed. Does he so? He's just so kind of in the background. But I think there's a split in the fans that have protested between those who would 
who are protesting because they think they have the loudest voice and therefore they have a responsibility to the game as a whole and those who, as you say, whose primary concern is getting the owners they don't like out of their club. I think that's, that's a genuine split. As Rory mutes uh, himself because of the drilling, as the rewiring and the carpet fitting continues, an email from Ivan Gadjev or Ivan Gadjev. Uh, Dear Marie Curie, Maria Gopatmeyer, Donna Strickland and Andrea Gez. Anybody wants it? If I've pronounced them correctly. Obviously, the first one's OK. Anybody want to guess that? Great chemists. Yeah, kind of. It is uh, the only four women to win the Nobel Prize for Science. Wow. Um, so just um, bear that in mind next time. That's, you a, names. that's damning, isn't it? It is indeed. I think that's the point that Ivan Ivan might be making. A good point. The MUFC protest had a very specific point, which is basically glazes out, but maybe one layer deeper. It's a combination of people's frustrations from living in modern society. I know this comes off a bit like I'm taking soccer too seriously, but at least I don't have a podcast about it. But then again, I had the recent experience of trying to explain the ESL and why everyone is so mad about it to my wife, and I ended up talking about Thatcherism and its effect on the city of Liverpool. I think soccer, because of its hyper-local roots and global appeal, is somehow more of a mirror to society than other major sports. On top of that, disentangling fandom from social issues has become harder as questionable club owners have lodged themselves in. A lot of mental and emotional work is thrust upon the Chelsea fan that must reconcile the success of their team with the source of Abramovich's money. See Rory's interview on the Daily Podcast for a more eloquent verbalisation. Soccer is most of my life, from a kid kicking whatever was most ball-like on the streets with friends to playing in college to joining the over-30 Sunday league in my city. I've been a CSKA Sofia and then Liverpool fan since whenever my dad told me that's what I will be. For me, soccer is an added lens through which I experience the world. It brings some issues into focus and blurs others. Listening to SBM has made me realise that I am not unique in this respect. Tons of soccer fans attach something more to their support for a club than just success on the pitch. This protest is that attachment boiling over. Uh, keep up the good work. Love you guys from uh, Ivan Ivan. Um, which refers to something that we, we've just been talking about. He has a PS which relates to our EastEnders drums conversation omg he says crotchets quavers and semi-quavers as opposed to quarter eighth and sixteenth notes lols you brits he says making not only a niche comment about musical notes but also a niche uh, comment about how musical notes are described either side of the atlantic so hang on do other people not have crotchets no they have eighth notes Just, oh, they, they can't remember quarter, the words well, for crotchets, them crotchets are quarter notes i should say yeah, they can't remember the words for them, Rory, so they just give them numerical values instead. They don't have, they don't have quavers. They don't have quavers. They might have the crisps. I don't know what kind of cheesy, curly crisps they have in the state. I don't, I don't think any other country has, has quavers, the crisps. Tell us, please. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Um, this is from Arne Bowie. Dear Fearsome Foursome, in the past couple of weeks there's been a lot of talk from both fans and the media regarding international fans and their outlook on the game, much of which, in my opinion, seems very presumptive. I think there's still this massive grey area regarding global fan bases that the English football ecosystem still doesn't know how to incorporate, which is a shame, I think, because as an international fan myself, I believe that most fan bases would be sympathetic to the causes championed by the local supporters and would love any chance to be more directly involved with the clubs that they care so much about. I think it's easy to think that the millions of supporters around the world are just remote viewers of the game but that really is not the case thanks to the internet and fan forums the international fan today is more informed and more involved than ever before which begs the question of whether there is current dialogue between local supporter groups and international ones and if not why not as the Super League shows, the global fan base is unfortunately as much, if not more, of a priority to these clubs' owners than the local supporters. Therefore, I think having fan solidarity across borders on issues like club ownership would be a massive statement. Imagine what an annual virtual conference of Manchester United fans or Liverpool fans would look like. That cannot be bad for the sport. Thanks for all you do. That's from Arne Bowie. Yeah, I think we did we say that a couple of weeks ago when we first talked about about this that 
to suggest that that global fans are completely detached from the the culture of indigenous supporters is to do them a disservice and surely that is part of the attraction if you follow a team from afar surely what that team represents and the involvement of the local fans in that club is is, is surely is part of the whole isn't it I, I don't I don't think that somebody just follows a team as a name and of one or two players and isn't interested in it in everything that it encompasses here is Aaron Brenner dear David Stephen Graham and Neil uh, another Googleable uh, quartet of people that you'll find are the first. The young ones, off. no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, young. Oh, no. young is correct. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Yeah. Um, my name is Aaron Brenner, and I'm writing from New York City. Not to be confused with Adam Bremner from New York City, another of your listener correspondents. Regarding SPM 228, as an old school listener, I appreciated that you were eating while recording. That is the way SPM was meant to be. Further regarding SPM 228, as a resident of a city in a country beset by men with much more money than intelligence, I can empathise with anyone who has a billionaire problem. Rory made what he called the trite, but what I call the necessary observation that American sports have socialistic elements, while European soccer's economic model is largely an unregulated free market. American billionaires, both inside and outside sports, have smartly recognised that they can do better if they adopt safety nets for themselves, whether that's bank bailouts in the financial economy or revenue sharing salary caps and antitrust exemptions in the sports economy. European clubs, billionaire owned or not, could learn a similar lesson. Steve made the point that fans like uncertainty and can live with their team's failure. I know. I'm an Everton fan. Must be post-1995. What I can't live with is an owner who either doesn't care about the club or uses it for something other than entertaining fans, maintaining the game and supporting the community. I want a basic level of fairness on and off the pitch. To get that, as Hugh said, soccer needs regulation. You talked about the NFL model. Why not institute revenue sharing like the NFL but without the closed franchises? In the UK, for example, all the money from television and national sponsorships for the entire 92-team pyramid could be shared but not evenly. Distribution would be based on table position. This would provide some stability and equality of revenue, giving teams at a similar level a relatively equal ability to compete for talent while providing the incentive to improve on-field performance. A similar system could be used for pan-European competition. That is the revenue side. Now the expense side. And here, why not use another American revenue sharing model, the NBA, where revenue is shared between owners and players with the latter receiving a guaranteed minimum portion of the revenue. This acts as a salary cap and a profit cap at the same time. If the players organise themselves the way the NBA players have, they can negotiate a very large share. It might be less than they get now, it might be more, but it would be transparent and universal, and it could provide a check on the whims of owners. Thank you for continuing to bring fun and information to my podcast schedule. That's from Aaron Brenner. I wonder whether the solution to, to football's kind of inequality is, is less financial, which I think is very hard to institute given the scale of the sport. One of the problems we have on this side of the Atlantic, I think, is that we think of of American football or baseball or basketball run, as being similar to football in the way that they're organised. What we don't realise is that, or what we don't maybe t take seriously enough, is that the NBA is itself a product. The, the, the NBA is, doesn't pretend to be basketball. There's not this kind of like connection to all the youth basketball teams across the States. It's like, it's like the WWE or like a film studio. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's just a, it's one, it's one institution. So it can have all these... These, these different financial mechanisms and, and tools that enable it to kind of limit expenditure or, or grow profits or whatever. You can't do that with football, but the reason it operates like a free market is because it is worldwide, it's endless, it's hugely deep. There's lots of corner shops, there's lots of supermarkets. So I think that 
financial regulation is really, really difficult to achieve in any sustainable and realistic way across the board. What might be more effective is, is effectively changing the way the sport works a little bit to make it harder to to ha- to have that that inequality sort of show up on the pitch. So the idea of, and I can't, I can't remember where I saw it, but I, th- I think it might be Gab Marcotti, and it makes perfect sense, is you limit the number of players in a squad. Gab's view is 19, I think that's maybe too few, but 20, which means that, that teams can't hoard talent and equally players have to accept lower salaries because they have to go to clubs that can't afford to pay them. I think it's mechanisms like that that, ha- that can have more of an impact than saying there is a salary cap. Because all, all that you'll get with a salary cap is that either someone in England will break it or that there'll be a team that, this is entirely hypothetical, pays quite a lot of its staff through a larger umbrella group and then doesn't count them towards the number of, t- towards its own salary chitty. Or you'll get someone, you'll get some sort of tax break in Turkey or in Poland or in Spain and it will turn out that you can earn 100 grand a week in Spain but only pay 0.5% tax. And that then changes, you know, you've got stuff like that to, to take into, into consideration. So I think that it ha- the, the mechanisms that we use have to be sporting rather than kind of accountancy-based. If, if there's a limit on the number of players you could have out on loan, that would be another way of, of preventing clubs from hoarding talent. Because ultimately, they'd have to either sell those players or have disenfranchised footballers at the club who weren't getting a game. And I'd imagine that moving them on would be the preferable way of dealing with that situation I, th- there's now drilling at my house as well I apologise the, the, um, the other thing that I quite like is the idea of, a, of an unused list and a draft from an unused list if you've got players who, who have not met a certain number of, re- of games played at the end of a season they are, re- they are effectively released for anyone to kind of bid for and, and hire that I think would really help Finally, briefly, in non-ESL-related correspondence, Henry Upton is the latest contributor to what is now definitely a great squirrel debate, with an email that has the rather sinister title of The Dark Side of Squirrels. Dear Squirrel, 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 and Eichhörnchen. Eichhörnchen. Squirrels have been getting a bit of press on this show lately. A listener said that Germans actually have an adequate pronunciation of squirrel, which may broadly be the case, but my German-American nephew has recently been in a squirrel phase of sorts, and hearing this two-and-a-half-year-old's impeccable pronunciation of Eichhörnchen and god-awful pronunciation of squirrel has been a sign for me of just how difficult the English word is. As for you fools disdain for our American pronunciation of squirrel, well, of course you'd think that, you arrogant sonetties. <laughs> Uh, when it comes to squirrels, says Henry, my relationship is complicated. Of course, they're cute animals, and in America, they are ubiquitous. I wouldn't have called them pests, though, until I had an ongoing feud with a group of them that were living in my home for over a year. To be clear, this co-tenancy wasn't by design, and the true villain in this story was an unresponsive landlord. But setting that aside, we had many squirrels take up residence in our house for a year, living in the walls and storing countless nuts that fell from the walnut tree in our yard. Every day in the morning, an incessant chorus of gnawing and scratching would begin to ring out from the walls as nuts would fall like plinko coins through the wooden beams around us. At a certain point, these squirrels became so bold as to take residence in the house itself. I had multiple startling face-to-face encounters with squirrels on the basement stairs and nuts began raining through the <laughs> openings in the ceiling along with bits of insulation and whatever else they had used to build their nests. 
Our landlord belatedly embarked on a futile, months-long mission to capture these squirrels without purchasing the services of a pest control company. She laid countless traps around our house and, as would be expected on a squirrel-infested continent, these caught many hapless creatures in the cages throughout the weeks, squirrels and non-squirrels alike, to no avail to the real problem, raging within the house. Week after week, her husband came in to seal new holes in the walls, but still the squirrels came in. It sounded at certain points as though the house would come down as dozens of tiny saws made their way through the old wood supporting the roof over our heads. The issue became worse when I took my car out one day and realised to my unpleasant surprise that the brake system wasn't working. <laughs> you see where this is going. When I had my car taken into the shop, the mechanic returned to the waiting room hours later with the bad news. Some small animals, he said, had chewed through and stripped the wiring of the car and had built a small nest. He assumed it had been the work of squirrels, which I didn't expect him to know so quickly, having not alerted to, uh, him to what had seemed to me at the time an irrelevant fact of my life. But the reason he knew became clear when he held up a 12-gallon garbage bag full of walnuts, which he said he had found stored in my engine block. Now, I'm not saying squirrels are always a menace, but this is a warning to listeners around the world of squirrels' power as a collective. Much like the power of the collective protests of fans against the ESL, I discovered, like an unassuming cronky or glazer, that these innumerable little creatures, who have always believed they've owned the place, seem to have much more chutzpah than I realised. It's also a warning that if you find squirrels staring up wonderingly at your parked car, it may be best to act soon in order to avoid the $1,200 worth of costs I had to eat to get myself back on the road. In the end, we moved to a new apartment. The squirrels, on the other hand, are apparently still in the old house. Uh, best from Henry Upton. Henry, thank you. And just very briefly, because a conversation about squirrels can't happen without one about Graham's. Here is an email from Graham Stephen. As a Scottish Graham who works in hospitality and therefore meet with a lot of, lot of Americans, I regularly face blank stares when asked my name by them. I have been called everything from Glen to Grim. I live in fear of being asked my name by American guests and find myself spelling it for people who think my parents were super fans of German fairy tale writers. Yours sincerely, G-R-A-H-A-M. Uh, correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. If there are more grams, grams, grams uh, out there, do uh, let us know. Now, you might remember that we had some correspondence a few weeks ago that I misflagged. Stuff to be read out on the show gets an orange flag. Subject suggestions get a red flag. Chris Corkin contributed post SPM 225, which was about morality with some very orange musings. But in his email, he made multiple points, one of which my colleagues here thought was very much in the red category. Here's a reminder. What is more meaningful to a player and supporters, a career with a club you support or leaving the club you support on your own terms to go and win something or win more? The Jack Grealish, Harry Kane conundrum. Personally, says Chris, I would stay at Villa or Spurs, as this is more meaningful to somebody from the area and of which their family supports, especially at Spurs as they are competing for Champions League and trophies perennially without passing the finish line. But the debate with my friends that he uh, mentioned elsewhere in the email led to comments such as Marcus Rashford or Trent Alexander-Arnold leaving United or Liverpool to win more with Real Madrid or Barcelona. But that can't possibly be right or moral, even if Rashford would likely win more if he moved to Bayern Munich, Barcelona or Real Madrid. I wonder if weaker allegiances to clubs, not from the place or the father doesn't support that club and big club supporters see trophies only as the end game. Whereas for most supporters, it's not about winning silverware. I'd love to know your thoughts. Best wishes, Chris Corkin. You're going to know our thoughts, Chris, just about four weeks later. We had planned to follow up with this conversation in the subsequent pod, but, you know, then the ESL happened. So in a rare example of us doing what we said we would, here we go. A pod on player pathways made serendipitously contemporaneous 
despite the delay, by the assertion by Borussia Dortmund on Monday that Erling Haaland will be staying with them for another season, true or not. It is he that offers the most recent but also potentially most stark example of how a modern super agent might plot the career path of a player who he and the football world are convinced is a sure thing. It is a rare case, but can it be applied to others too? What is the benefit of predetermining a footballer's journey? And what are the factors that go into those decisions? Money, yes, but geography and potential and coaching setup maybe. They appear to all be part of the process when deciding a player pathway. As with everything football related, I, I guess we're going to start with Chinch, aren't we? But we know the answer to this. Chinch, did you have a pathway in mind when you started your entirely serendipitous and not 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 something you took particularly seriously career? Um, no, A, I didn't have an agent and B, I wasn't good enough to have a path. It just wasn't the thing back then, was it really? I, I had enough of a problem staying with the club I was at and seeing out the contract I was on than thinking, hmm, I'm probably better than this. And maybe I should be thinking, who am I going to play for next? Who am I going to play for after that? I was very comfortable where I was and I felt the responsibility to the clubs that I played for. So again, it's whether it is down to the player. Is it down to players' families? Is it down to agents? But surely this is a a pretty modern phenomenon in terms of player pathway. It's, well, when did this first start to be talked of? We're looking five... Five years ago, were we talking in these terms about a player? Right, he's 18 years old now. We're going to see where he is at 26. We're planning where he's going to be at 30. I can't remember people talking in those terms about a player planning out his future career because nothing's ever that certain in football. You can maybe say, well, where are you now? Is this where you're going to stay for 10 years? Or if you do really well, the club are maybe going to have to sell you or you'll think about moving on. So then you say, well, right, I've got a decision to make about where I go from here. Surely you can't plan out. 10 years of, of footballing career because you just never know how things are going to go. How many young players have we heard about that are the next best thing and nothing ever happens for them? So there might be a pathway for them, but it never actually materialises. So again, I, I do feel it is surely isn't in terms of agents coming along and having more of a say in their in their clients' future. Surely that's fairly new, is it? You'd say maybe with Pogba and, and, and Holland, we're talking about Harry Kane and Jack Grealish. I can't remember, say, five, 10 years ago, we were talking on these terms about players working out exactly which clubs they'd be playing for in two, four, six years' time. It, surely it's fairly new, isn't it? It, it, would, it would seem to me to be, unlike you, Andy, where, for example, your player pathway would be set up until you got to a crossroads where uh, Howard Kendall was one of the options and then you realised that uh, I'm going to have to wait for these... It wasn't really a player pathway. I was kind of player treading water, basically. There was no pathway. I wasn't moving forward. I was just basically staying where I was and hopefully improving to some degree over three or four years. So if Howard Kendall wasn't on that road network of the pathways that you were attempting to find, it seems to me that the modern examples are twofold, or at least the two that I can think of. There'll be many more, I'd imagine, with better brains involved in this podcast. But one is the Erling Haaland situation where you have an elite player who everybody knows is a sure thing, as I mentioned in the introduction. And so you have the luxury of being able to do that, particularly if they're young and they have already proven themselves. And the other one is when you have a network of clubs, which actually Erling Haaland partly falls into because he's moved away from that when it might have been a different plan for him that you've got the the Red Bull clubs or you've got the City Football Group you've got something like that where you can buy a player and you can plot out what you intend to do with them over the course of the nascent part of their career like if you like by sending them to clubs that are satellite clubs for the main club with the intention of potentially having them develop to such an extent that you can then involve them in the main club Manchester City or Red Bull could be Leipzig so that there's those kind of situations Erling Haaland started off at, at Salzburg with that in mind at least partially 
but obviously he's diverted from that when he had a chance to go to Leipzig. They decided that it would be a Borussia Dortmund. So let's talk about the Erling Haaland situation. Rory, you mentioned weeks ago, and it piqued my interest, that, that Mina Raiola and Alfie Inge Haaland might have thought about this from a long time ago, about the stepping stones being, for him, Germany, followed by Spain, followed by the Premier League, which is a slight kind of reorganisation of priorities as you would have, would have expected potentially about three or four years ago because of the financial issues that the, the two Spanish clubs are facing at the moment and because of the competitive nature potentially also of the Premier League. So how long ago do you think that they would have set that and how desperate do you think that they will be to stick to it given that he might stick around for another year at Dortmund, be a lot cheaper next summer and that obviously the football landscape is changing over and over and over again? Yeah, I think obviously COVID and the the consequences of it won't have been factored into their decision making, and it it will change it. I think that there's no such thing as a as a kind of like a like a concrete pathway. That there's no it would be bizarre agency for Raiola or whoever to be like, well, this was our plan and we're not going to change it despite this massive global pandemic that has fundamentally shifted you know football's economic basis. I think if you look at what Holland's done, he started out at a team called Brin uh, from Gavin and Stacey. And the at that point, like he was, that was where he was. I think he, he was there till he was about sixteen. So it could have been Welsh as well as being. English could have been Welsh. Norway. Could have been Welsh. Um, I think that's. I can't pronounce it. I, I, I interviewed Harland uh, pre-pandemic, so maybe February twenty twenty. I suppose. In fact, it was. It was the, the the day after he played PSG in the Champions League and scored that brilliant goal. Um, I went and saw him and Gio Reyna, and Harland laughed at me because I couldn't pronounce the name of his first team. Laughed at me consistently because I couldn't pronounce it. But anyway, it's, it's a team in Norway that looks like Bryn. Then he, he, at that point, he could have gone, I think, to Liverpool or Manchester United or Manchester City. They will all have been looking at him. They will have known about him. They'll have seen that there's this kid whose dad is Alfie Holland, who is who is tearing it up at youth level, playing, I think, he'd, he'd made his debut for, for them. You know, that the normal step for most agents there would be, let's get them to England, get them into, a, into an academy and track on. But he didn't. He went to Molde, where he worked with, um, I think he worked with Solskjaer. And the idea there was very much, let's keep him in Norway until he's a little bit older, get him first team football, make sure he's ready, don't let him get lost in the academy system. I think that's a great decision. I think more more agents should have the the courage to let their their, their clients do that, whether they're in Norway or Holland or Belgium or wherever. Is, uh, is this planning though, Rory? Is this unique to Holland or is this what no, no, no. is happening with most elite so, young players? So the best example is probably Mendes, who... Fame, relatively semi-famous, semi-famously, when he takes on a new client, will will give them a kind of hypothetical blueprint of what he thinks their career will look like. So he'll find some kid, probably called Joao, in Portugal. He's working in. But there won't out. be just some kid. There'll be there'll be elite young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They won't be some, just anybody, will they? They're so not going to go for. No, well, he'll have a part-time job working as a personal trainer yeah. in, you know, on the Algarve coast. On the Algarve. He might have he might have clients mm. from Portugal and also from you know Woodford in Cheshire. The, so Joao, Joao will be some sort of elite talent at, at what's the local team to, to your place in Portugal? Forenza. Uh, Portimonense. 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 Yeah, yeah. He lives in lo- Portimao, Joao. So, yeah, yeah. So, I'm not going to give you his address because I don't want people turning up. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. Portim- <laughs> Portimonense. Yeah, yeah. Mind you, if you turned up at Joao's house, he, 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 would, he would hurt you. Yeah, exactly. It's not a risk. So, yeah. anyway, Joao is... It's like is... a Portuguese Jack Reacher. Joao Reacher. I think that's what... He'd be very good, actually. Very good. Sorry, we're getting off the point here. I'm on a Rory tangent. Back to you. 
Joao is a 17-year-old kid at Portimonense and George Mendes decides, I can make money off you. So he will go to Joao and he'll say, right, if you have another good season at Portimonense, we will get you a transfer to Benfica or, or Porto because that's what, where, that's what Mendes does. Mm-hmm. And then he'll say, and, and then the, our plan, if you fulfil your talent, if, you, if you're dedicated, and Mendes isn't necessarily like a positive influence on football, but he is a good agent. He is good at being an agent. That's why he's, he's got the power he's got. So he will go to Joao and he will say, if you fulfill your talent, this is what your career might look like. I can, the advantage of working with me, George Mendes, is that I have connections at all of these clubs. I can make this work. All you need to do for, to fulfill your side of the bargain is try and make sure you're dedicated and professional and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so we'll say, we'll do, you'll, we'll do a year at Portimonense. We'll get you to Benfica or Porto. You'll do two years there. You'll play in the Champions League, at which point we will move you to Valencia. And if you do two years at Valencia, at that point, it will either be you know, one of the big Spanish clubs or one of the big Premier League teams or PSG or wherever will come, or Inter Milan, they will come for you. And we have connections at all of these clubs and you'll then get your big contract at, 20, at 23, 24 from, from one of the elite teams. But all you have to do is sign with me. I can make all these deals happen. And as long as you're, you, you do what you want, what you have to do, then, this is, this, then I can make your dreams come true. That's how Mendes pitches himself to his clients. And I think Raiola is the same. Raiola and all those super agents, Jonathan Barnett and Stella, all you know, all the all the big name agents will be exactly the same. They will be saying the advantage of working with us is that we can make these deals happen. We have leverage. We have contact. We have have a, a route in. Your your the bit that you have to do is to to fulfil your talent basically, and it's it's mapped out in a in a theoretical way. I don't think in most cases there is a specific club in mind. I don't think Raiola sat down with Haaland and said right. It's Bryn to Mulder to RB Salzburg to Dortmund to wherever. I think what they did was look at it and say, what you need at this stage of your career is first-team football in Norway. Right, you've done that, good. What, what is best for you now is a couple of years at Mulder playing for the biggest team in Norway, the best team in Norway, and to, to sort of shine, get international recognition, build the, build the hubbub, make sure, you know, get your stats up effectively, make sure that you become a sensation. And at that point, and this is the really clever thing, they didn't take the money at that point. They went to Salzburg and they thought, right, what you need now is you've shown you've got talent, but you need to show you can work in an ultra-modern pressing system, you know, cutting edge, it sounds stupid, but like cutting edge football where you can continue to develop in relative anonymity, a little bit away from the limelight. You're not under pressure. You'll be in a good team. You'll be winning leagues. You'll be in the Champions League or the Europa League. You, you will be taking that next step. Austria, probably a better league than Norway, though there's not, there probably isn't a vast amount in it, to be honest. Next step, next step up. And from that point on, you'll do a year, 18 months, two years at Salzburg. And then if we need it, we'll get you to Leipzig. Because obviously, although obviously there's no connection, there is a connection. And if not Leipzig, they obviously decided in, in, the, in the event, Leipzig's not quite right. We'll go to Dortmund instead, I guess, because of it's a higher profile club. Because Haaland's development, I think, was probably quicker than they expected. And by all accounts, what they've decided now is you will do your time at Dortmund. It might be 18 months. It might be two and a half years depending on what Dortmund think. And at that point, as things stand with the with the reordering of football's economy, they seem to have decided that Spain is the natural next step for them, that you go to Spain, then onto the Premier League, which as Hugh says is a is a reverse of what, what, what was the case five years ago. And you get your big payday in two, three years' time because ultimately the logic there is that and this is something we'll come on to with, with clubs further down further down the food chain, I think, because it's really important. The 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 key thing for players now of that level and possibly of all of, of all relatively high levels is progression. There will be a lot of players like Chinch for whom success is 
and I don't, this sounds pejorative, it's not meant to be, but like clinging onto their careers. It's just making sure that you have a career, that your main priority, that sounded really bad, Chin, sorry. No, I'd, I'd love to disagree, but you're absolutely spot on. <laughs> the... Setting it up with this might sound pejorative and then basically just making it insulting. Playing, yeah, playing, enough, playing enough football to make my mortgage payments was very important to me. No, but there'll be a lot of players who are, who are having really, really good careers in the, in the Premier League or Serie A or the Bundesliga whose, whose priority is continuing to be at Eintracht Frankfurt or continuing to play for a club of the level of Southampton or West Ham or wherever. Well, they might, be, that... they might be happy and they might know their level. I always knew my level and, and was yeah. happy where I was. So again, there's a lot to be said for that. And you haven't got people maybe kind of promoting other ideas. I, I think I'd have found that very difficult. People say, well, there's an opportunity maybe you could move on to there or move sideways to that. I'd be thinking, I don't really, I'm happy where I am. But it, it, can, be at really, it can be at a really high level. It can be at the, you know, the highest possible level, really. If you think about someone like, if you think of someone like Joel Matip, Joel Matip will not have a, partly of age, but will not have a kind of career trajectory. What, you know, where, where am I going to go from Liverpool? Joel Matip will have been like, well, this is Liverpool. This is... This is as high as I can feasibly go. He might get picked up by, you know, it's, it's not impossible that like Real Madrid might sign him as a fourth choice central defender, but it's not particularly likely. He will be thinking, well, actually, do you know, I've, this is my job now is to maintain my, maintain my place at this, at one of the biggest clubs in the world. That's fine. There'll be loads of people like that. But that'll be true of Victor Lindelof. I don't know why I'm just picking on central defenders. Lindelof, they've peaked, haven't they? You probably said they, they've peaked. Yeah, they've got as high yeah. as they can go. And, and their job at that point becomes, their pathway is stay in here. I think for... It's different for young players who will be seeking to fulfil their talent. And they look not only for agents who can make that happen, but they want to know that the clubs they're signing for are happy when the time comes, if an offer arrives that's suitable, that allows them to fulfil their ambitions, that the club they're at will go. And so the, the other significant thing that's happened this week is that the story has emerged in Germany that Dortmund won't... I think Mikkel Zork has said... There is a gentleman's agreement with Jaden Sancho that he can go this year. That's part of what makes Dortmund so appealing to, to, to young players, that they are prepared to sell. They will charge a pretty penny, but they will sell. The problem that teams like Everton and Spurs have is that they are not at the peak. They're not Man City. Man City never sell anybody, but it's Man City, so the, so the players don't mind. because They're competing for trophies. They're, pay, they're paid incredibly well. Everton and Spurs are not at that level, but are difficult to deal with. So if if... Jaden Sancho had left Man City for Everton, it might well be that Jaden Sancho was, was tearing up the Premier League and that this summer there was talk of him going to Chelsea or, to, or to Man, back to Man City or Man United or, or to Real Madrid or Barcelona. And Everton would be saying, no, he's not for sale. They, that would be, their public position would be, he is not for sale. And at some point, the players will get worried by that because they'll be thinking, well, hang on, what if this deal is too difficult to do and I, I have to, and this is, not said, this is not meant to be pejorative, I have to spend the rest of my career at Everton. That was not my dream. And I think for, for most clubs now, and this goes right up to the top level, apart from maybe, maybe Bayern, probably City, possibly Chelsea, Real Madrid and Barcelona when they've got money, everybody else has to accept that they are a stepping stone, that they are... a a waypoint on a journey for a player. And I'm not sure all the clubs that need to have realised that have realised that. And Spurs are probably the best example. Even Liverpool? Yep, yeah, Liverpool sold Coutinho. And the yeah, part, yeah, yeah. part of the advantage with selling Coutinho for Liverpool, Liverpool have got a problem this summer because I'm pretty sure Liverpool's whole model rested on selling one of Salah or Mane for, for, for over £100 million at some point. And that, that market has now gone. It's possible that someone like PSG might come and try and get Salah just as the number of goals he draws, but I think it's unlikely. 
Liverpool sold Coutinho partly because they got them a load of money, but partly because it said to the next Coutinho, hey, if you come to Liverpool and do really well, we'll sell you to Barcelona. And that, that's really important. That's part of what makes some of this so incredibly clever because what these, a lot of these players are is they're the exception rather than the rule. You've either, whilst there's a lot of talk about Haaland, he is an exception to the, the general process of things. And it also is an exception in terms of the super agents who have that ability to sell the, the hypothetical career progression that Rory has described to young emerging players that they believe they might be able to make money off. So you either have those quite clearly emerging talents like Haaland, or you have Zhao from Porto Manense, who might make it, might make the agent money, but there's an awful lot of imponderables along the way. The other clever side of it is taking certain clubs along on the journey. Those who can be convinced, as has been with Erling Haaland, like Mulder, like Salzburg, like Dortmund, that not only do they benefit from getting an exceptional young player, but they are going to make some money along the way. And, and each, each stone you are along, the more money you're likely to make from having that player represent you for 18 months, two years. You know, you, it, it's being magnified by tens of millions of pounds at a time, potentially, in terms of what the, the, the profit that Dortmund might make and whoever takes Haaland on next is likely to also subsequently make a profit on him. So the, so the agents are looking at, at countries and then clubs, three or four clubs within that country to maybe, and it's not, well, it has to be this club, it has to be that club. It's the country kind of process and then clubs within that country to move the, to move the players through. Country and level. I think that's, uh-huh. the, that's the other key thing. It's, it's, they will be looking at kind of wh- which, which lead works for us, obviously financially. But when did, when did all this start, do you reckon, in terms of agents thinking this way? Is it the players that have made this happen or is, were the agents thinking we can do this with, with any players or the, the elite player? Is it players like Holland are at that level and the amount of money that can be made from these players? Which, which, what, where, what's the drive? Is it the agent or the players coming along? Yeah, but that's, that's, that's why we I... shouldn't get too fixated though, isn't it? Because they are the, they're the, the exceptional circumstances. Mm. Fascinating as it is, you're still talking about the top. One. Well, you had you had Paul Pogba say at Juventus at the time. Again, was he in the same process of, of right? We're going to find a pathway for you, Pogba, at this point, or is it is it Holland? Is he is he the one that really has maybe and Sancho possibly as no, well? Is, is are they the players that have forced this process, this pathway development that we maybe didn't have five years ago? I think Steve, Steve's right that the, the the times when it's relevant are with the with the elite prospects. That's the only time it really comes yeah. comes true. But I I, I do think agents talk to players about this stuff on quite a broad level so i think there's quite a lot of agents and it's only sell them some kind of dream haven't you some kind of and players will not fall for it but players will say oh okay i'm playing at porto minutes but i could be playing at you know Bayern munich in in five six years is that is that what players need to hear it's always with young players because by the time they're 26 27 as steve says quite rightly they'll they'll be thinking largely about Right, I need to make sure I've got a place in a squad, whether it's at my current club or you know another club of a similar level. They'll, they they will kind of find their level and their career trajectories change. You're not suddenly going to get your chance at. Well, I don't know, but even then, you'd um if you're Bunasar, who was playing for Marseille at 26, 27, then suddenly finds himself at Bayern Munich this year, it it, it can not come playing. not playing. But you know he's at Bayern Munich, so he's, he's going to get a Bundesliga title. You know he's going to get a Bundesliga medal. 
but the ge generally by the time you're in your mid-twenties you've probably your career path has been set just about and your concerns are different it is with young players but i do think agents talk about it in a at a broader level i think that if you go to young players in poland or in somewhere in eastern europe there will be a sense of we will get you from here to there and then maybe to russia or to or to greece or you know one of the bigger leads in that kind of one of the bigger smaller leads if you see what i mean does it does it change the players mentality you think because are they actually enjoying playing football at the club are they always thinking of of the next club and the club after that do you think the players mentality actually this is just a process i just need to play a few games here or a couple of seasons here are they thinking about the move and actually they're not are they forgetting to enjoy the football they're playing at the time you won't get the move as as rory alluded to with the george mendez uh, situation you won't get the move unless you deliver on your potential so yeah. you you still have but it's like a, it's the means to an end, though, isn't it? And you're always thinking about the end rather than actually enjoying what yeah, you're doing at the time. I've got I to play well here. What are you playing for this club, or are you playing for the next move that you're going to get, or you've been told is going to happen? So the players' mentality is probably changing. I think that's probably right. That it makes the players a little bit more transactional and a little bit more kind of peripatetic. That there is a sense of we are. I am here to do to do a thing and then get somewhere else. I think that's probably true. In terms of when it started, it will be in the last 10, 15 years, and I suspect that it's. It's largely to do with the rise of the, the increased globalization of football, to do with the rise of um, the super agents, particularly, and to do with just kind of the, the game's endless, apparently relentless growth into into this incredibly kind of interconnected world. But the other thing that is that's crucial to, to to acknowledge at this point is that clubs think like this too, and that's why you get all these networks of clubs, uh, which is which is is definitely a a trend of the last maybe ten years. And there was a, a time when Udinese were kind of the, the, the outliers for having Udinese, Watford and Granada. But now there's the, uh, three, I don't know, two, three dozen little networks of clubs. And some of them are, are high profile at like City Football Group or, or the Red Bull teams. Some of them are, are working across much smaller markets. And their basic model is that they think the way you make, fo make money out of football is in transfers. So they are looking for player pathways too to take players. There's one in Latvia, Cyprus and Russia. And the, the logic there is very much to take the players between Latvia and Russia and onto Cyprus, get the bid, and then from Cyprus you might get access to a bit, a slightly bigger European league. It'll it'll be small beer in comparison to Haaland, but you're still looking at potentially, I don't know, a big move to, yeah, to Greece or to Turkey or wherever, and suddenly you've got you've got your 1.5 million euro payday, and I think that the clubs now think about that as well that they have to, in a way that didn't happen in your era, change, that the clubs are thinking right, how do we progress these players to the point where we can make money off them when you talk about my career and the other two guys just tend to kind of smile knowingly as if to say yeah you were a bit shit, weren't you you should have just been happy where you were but you're right to say that i was very happy thank you but can you can you not imagine and this is this is a level even below chinch but can you imagine it also is there a level below me yes well certainly at your current level maybe not but uh, at the level that you were <laughs> no, we, we discovered the of clinging on to your career when we discovered the, we discovered the other week that the level below chinch is nigel winterburn and i don't think nigel's gonna be very happy about that is he <laughs> Can you imagine I that? thought the level below Chinch was the press box. <laughs> oh, I like it. Like but, it. But the, can you not imagine there to be, you know, a group of players who are maybe playing for a League Two team or a League One team and they work with that same principle within a smaller, well, it might be a, a, a wider network in terms of number of clubs, but a smaller uh, potential growth where you think to yourself, right, I'm, I know that this player is an asset of mine who won't probably play ever above championship level, but I can negotiate for them a path way through clubs like 
Rochdale who are who kind of work within this system as well and understand that there is a kind of a class of player that they can pick up from non-league, turn into a, an asset that they could then sell onto a League One team or a Championship team. So the clubs are complicit in this example too. But is there is there not sense in the nuance that you can see provided actually and surprisingly to many people given the sledgehammer approach it seemed that Mina Ryla was taking uh, with Erling Haaland but there there is nuance to it there is an understanding that you don't necessarily just go for the big buck straight away and applying that nuance to players at the lower level of a pyramid structure like like in England there's benefit to that as well isn't there and so you can see it applied or you can imagine it being applied at all levels of football over chinch and below Chinch. Well, well, Peterborough have gone and done themselves a huge disservice by getting themselves promoted to the championship and can no longer be the League One finishing school for championship strikers. So there's a, there's a stepping stone that suddenly found itself pushed out of place. But I think within, within the English game... again, so it'll all be fine. But surely within the English game, do you still see that in Leagues 1 and 2 there will be player pathways? Or is it the fact that those players have played well, in, just simply played well in Leagues 1 and 2... And they then get a move to the championship, like Ivan Tony. You talk about Peterborough yeah. moving on to Brentford, and then yeah, possibly the Brentford. Getting... But again, I, I don't think the pathway would have been right. You have a good few seasons at Brent uh, at uh, Peterborough. We'll move you to a championship club, and whether they get promoted or not, there'll be a Premier League club coming to you. It's just purely the fact that Ivan Tony has played incredibly well that's got in the moves. I don't think surely uh, so, in England at least one there is that pathway that you maybe see with other with other players and agents. So I think there is, but it's, it maybe works on a slightly different level to the to the deliberate one that we that we look at with with Holland I think what Ivan Tony will have thought is I've got a choice to sign for two or three clubs who are interested in me which one has a proven record of selling players onto the championship which one plays the right way which one has an attacking you know an attacking style of play or which one which one which one has a coach who can help me develop I'll choose Peterborough because they tick all of those boxes and then when I leave Peterborough there will be two or three clubs interested in me which one plays the right way, which one has a coach who can help me develop, which one might get into the Premier League, or if it doesn't get into the Premier League, might se- will, will willingly sell me on because its model is based on, its model is based on, on buying low, selling high. Yeah. And in, within that, there will have, I'm sure there'll have been a couple of Premier League teams who might have sniffed around at Ivan Tony, maybe at the lower levels of the Premier League, it might have been a Norwich or whoever at the time. And he, he will have thought, well, actually, do you know what, the, ne- the natural next step for me is the championship. If I can do it in the championship, I will get a bigger move to the Premier League and I'm more likely to be a starter. Whereas if you go from lead one to the Premier League, you'll be a sub for a bit, you might get loaned out, you get a bit lost. So I think that Ivan Tony probably did have a pathway in mind. There won't have been, I'm going to go to Peterborough, all the major rail junctions. I'm going to go to Peterborough, <laughs> then Brentford, and then I'm going to go to, to you know Newcastle, back to Newcastle or whatever. It will be kind of, right, I'm going to go to lead one and play for this type of club. Then I'll go to the championship, not the Premier League, and play for this type of club. And then from there, I will go to this type of club in the Premier League. So I think that there is that thought of where do I need to be? So it's just as important then for players, and that's not to try and say, you know, Ivan Tony comparing him to Erling Haaland. It's very, very important that the players maybe do think, well, if things go really well, that there is some kind of plan in place for me. So I I just didn't think it would be the same with players at that level in 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 England, but it, it clearly... Probably is. And that's why it's so important, I think, that clubs at those levels get that reputation for for playing progressive football. There's been a huge change in the way that Leeds lead 1 and Leeds 2 play football. Lead 1 and Lead 2 play football. Even in, into non-lead, the, 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 the stereotype of the game at that level is no longer really true. You need to have a, a young, and, well, I mean, not necessarily a young coach, but a forward-thinking coach. You need to have a style of play that, that appeals to players who want to, to push on further. 
and you need to have a reputation that that means you you understand that your job is not to retain those players forever that your job is not to tell talented footballers that that they are now helping you survive in mid table in the championship and that is their lot you have to be willing to to talk with the the teams from the, the level above whether that's in the championship or in the premier league some of these pathways are, are cultivated and others are, are created more organically and i guess that peterborough one is one that is just sort mm. of developed over time through circumstances through sort of a, a proven record of success for players who have have gone that way rather than one which an agent has through their contacts managed to work to an advantage for them for their players and for the clubs that they do business with which pr- probably speaks about the the kind of relationships or the power that those super agents have to be able to have the agency to use a particularly suitable word to, to to be able to do that and there are others who's yes who don't have the agency it is a more passive player pathway where you are that the circumstances are dictated to you and it's whether you make the right decisions uh, in those moments and the the illusion that Rory made earlier to Jaden Sancho moving to Everton and Everton not wanting wanting to sell Jaden Sancho in the way that Borussia Dortmund might be uh, more amenable to kind of speaks to what we've been talking about with the ESL clubs and the idea that you cannot be seen to be selling an asset like that because your fans will react badly to it because they make certain demands of what your club does and the reputation and the brand and everything that's related to that which of course is the great irony about the protests against the ESL because they were saying as we said last week that we don't want you to become more financially powerful even though the reasons that some of you some of you have decided to do that is an order to try and compete with those teams that might want to buy Jaden Sancho from Everton. I suppose it's the one the one group of people we've not talked about is the fans. If the clubs have these plans in place, agents do, players are thinking this way. Because fans have always always tended to be the case, you know, don't see our club, my club, as a stepping stone. I remember when Romelu Lukaku went to Everton, and it, I don't know whether this was definitely the case. Well, I'll go to Everton, prove myself, score a few goals, and then I'll get a move on from there. But I remember speaking to Everton fans at the time that Lukaku was there, and they were saying, look, again, how they see their club and, and their traditions and everything else is that you come here because you want to play and stay here. Don't ever see us as a stepping stone. And that was their criticism of Lukaku. He just saw the club. And understandably, you can see why he, he, he did that. He wanted again to prove himself to move on to a bigger club. Um, I say bigger club in inverted commas, but um, is that again no, the fans? In, Ma- you don't need to. Manchester United and Inter Milan are both bigger clubs than Everton. No, I play for Everton. I don't think that. I think they're on a par, um, having not played for either of the other teams. But um, so again, our fans, it, our fans, do they understand that this is is the if Jaden Sancho leaves it, uh, leaves Bor- 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 Borussia Dortmund, do they just say? Yeah, that's just the way it is. We understand how the land lies. We're not happy with that, but that's just the way that our club is run and football is going. Can you remember the Stoke example that we've often referenced on this podcast about the idea that they were at a certain point providing a stepping stone for players to come in with the understanding that they would be higher calibre players than Stoke might normally be able to attract, but with the understanding that they would also be leaving after two or three years to potentially a better Premier League club. It it seemed at the time that everybody bought into that because the fans appreciated that these are players that they wouldn't necessarily be seeing playing for their club. So with that caveat included, they bought in. Yeah. But the problem is, I think, for teams like Everton and Spurs, that they are, and this isn't a criticism, that they are close enough to the top level or they, they have 
sufficiently close memories of being the destination clubs that they don't re that, that it's much harder for them as as institutions to accept the idea that they have for the time being this reduced role but if you want to be the destination club the only way you can get there is by buying the players who who players who are on their way to the champions league effectively having them for two or three years then selling them on buying more players who are on their way to the champions league and eventually you will have a team full of players that are on their way to the champions league and that team might get into the champions league it's about taking as well as taking the clubs on that journey with you the fans of those clubs on that journey Jaden sancho wasn't joining borussia dortmund if there wasn't an understanding that they would be amenable to selling him on at, at when the time was right and dortmund and therefore their supporters will have understood that by signing Jaden Sancho, they stand, that gives them a better chance of making sure that they are in the Champions League as a consequence because the competition for Champions League places in Germany is, is pretty intense. And, and if Borussia Dortmund get into the Champions League for next season, Erling Haaland will be a very large proportion of the responsibility for that because they have faltered along the way this season, Dortmund. And, and by having Erling Haaland for this season is a big reason why they might get to keep him for next season and why they will also be willing to accept that at the right time they will have to sell him on. And, and also fans, I imagine, find the argument a little bit uh, easier to stomach if they make about £100 million profit on Jadon Sancho, which they uh, may well make when they eventually decide to part ways. It is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. This is when Andy tells us a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. It's just a thought I'd told before. I, I mentioned it on the, the last pod and I, I just presumed that you'd heard all the stories that I, I have to tell, but apparently not. And uh, it, it probably underlines maybe why I had a very poor relationship with the Manchester United players that I knew around the time of the really the height, the, the very the dizzying heights of my career. Uh, David Beckham and, uh, and Gary Neville and Nicky Butts and uh, Phil, every, all of them basically, all of them hated me. And I, I tend to think it was their problem, but it, it probably was me as well. So this story, I don't think Gary Neville and myself come out of it looking particularly good but it was just after I didn't realize actually it was very close to when I joined Sheffield Wednesday in January 98 this game was played uh, in March 98 and I had to go onto YouTube just to remind myself of of the game because I, I remember that certain things happened but then my memory is is pretty poor I remember Paolo Di Canio scoring kind of an overhead kick and he actually did but Peter Atherton had opened the scoring this is at Hillsborough the pitch was absolutely appalling by the way but anyway we're 1-0 up Peter Atherton has scored Sadly, it wasn't my cross that he scored from. So we're 1-0 up and United are having chance after chance after chance. They hit the bar. Kevin Pressman makes some amazing saves, which was unusual for him. Uh, and then at the 88th minute, uh, a cross comes in from Benny Carbo and he's headed back across goal by Guy Whittingham. We all remember him. And Paolo Di Canio with a kind of an improvised overhead kick turns it goalwards. It goes past the keeper and it's kind of, it looks like it's been smuggled off the line, but it's actually gone in. So it's gone over the line to make it 2-0 in the 88th minute. So clearly I'm, I'm not keeping up with play. This is in the United six yard box. I'm still, you know, hands on knees, panting heavily, having to do some tremendous defending. But still I find the energy to hurtle up the pitch, to celebrate, to play my part, even though I never touched the ball in, in the build up to the goal. I run past Gary Neville and yeah, I didn't cover myself with glory. I, I, my, I didn't, I, I maybe said something. Do I regret them? No, I, I actually said, ha ha. Take that, Gary, in a manner of speaking. 
right in his face and then ran off to celebrate with Paolo Di Canio, who was still down on his knees praising God. And uh, so as we jog back to the halfway line, Gary Neville kind of sidles over to makes makes a point of coming over to me. And he uh, he grabs hold of his Manchester United badge, which is adorning his chest, uh, and kind of grabs it and says, I'm Manchester United captain. Who are you? And I only wish I'd said, look at the scoreboard, you clown. You're captain of the Titanic. But I didn't. <laughs> I just went... <laughs> it's 2-0, Gary. I don't think I said Gary. And just trundled back into my left-back berth. But, uh, yeah, we didn't come out of it because the words were disgusting that we, uh, that we passed to and fro. I, I always felt that first meeting when we, not broadcast together, but we were working for the same... And it was relatively frosty, our first meeting. But he put on a bit of weight more than me. So I actually felt a bit better than, than he did at the time. It was a Goodison Park. We, our paths crossed. But it wasn't mentioned, but it's always been bubbling under. But yet, if you're going to say, and I'm captain of Manchester United, isn't it great? And you're losing 2-0 at Hillsborough to Sheffield Wednesday with me in the team. That, <laughs> that is not something to be proud of, is it, really? But I'm amazed I've not told this story before. I think I told a story of another United game where all the United players after the game lined up to give me abuse when I had my two small children. That's why I thought I'd maybe told the story before. But this was a different game. We beat them 3-1 on that occasion and we beat them 2-0 on this occasion. But yeah, I should have behaved better. And yeah, I just wish I'd said, you're captain of the Titanic. It's a missed opportunity for me there. If we have uh, done that story before, uh, do let us know because Chinch can't remember his career. We can't remember our own podcast. Keep your correspondence coming into gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, Rory and Andy and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Is there any chance that I could be indulged? Because um, I think I've told Hugh this. I'm not sure I've told everybody else. I've been listening to all the Reacher books on Audible with Jeff Harding. And that's how he says his name. This is, is, is Bad Luck and Trouble by Jeff Harding. That's how he says his name. But he's the perfect, perfect reader for Reacher. So I'm on book 11 at the moment. But I'm thinking of doing a bit of Reacher-style writing, but on a football pitch. Would it be okay for me to just put together a little, a, a little story in a Reacher-style, but football-based? Would that... Would that fill a soccer story? Would that be okay to do that? I think that's a, that's a great idea. I mean, I, I would wonder, surely the plot would be that the reach of the footballer, no doubt a left back. No, would... no, no, no. He's going to be a, he's going to be a towering centre forward who runs the channels well and is, has a surprisingly good first touch for a big man. But continually gets sent off for headbutting people. <laughs> and, and elbowing in the air. It tends to do that in the changing rooms or around the back of the changing rooms. This is going to be, again, all these elements will come into play. But I just thought, again, you're the right, you're writer or inverted commas, will, what do you think? Is it will, a... will his main enemy be someone called Harry Bevel? Uh, actually, that's a very, I, I was thinking more along the lines of, of referees that he might turn his eye. But again, I've got a scenario in mind. I, I've, I was going to possibly do it for today's pod, but it actually would have taken a couple of hours and I just, I'd rather go in the garden. So I'll, I'll, I've got maybe a week or so to put this together, but would it be acceptable to fill a soccer story with, with this you type of thing? You crack on, yeah. We, can, does anyone know Jeff Harding? Anyone can maybe? Jeff Harding. Jeff Harding. Anybody, anybody can, if we can get a contact for him, whether they'd be interested in, in reading it through. I, I can do it myself because I'm excellent at voices, you know that. And there will be a variety of voices in there. <laughs> oh, no, seriously, it'll how, be... How many will be, how many will be Alan Bennett? Uh, uh, Alan 
There won't. No, I'll try not to do an Alan Bennett. There'll be a couple of females in there. Alan Bennett. Females in there. So it's. Uh, I, get, I don't want to give too much away because I think it's going to be a very, very exciting.